Hello and welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. Recently, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Daniel Goleman. Yes, the Dr. Daniel Goleman, the man who created uh, the notion of emotional intelligence. Well, maybe he didn't create it, but certainly brought it into popular parlance in the 1990s. I think for some of us, we have never known a time when there was not this notion of emotional intelligence. Um, it's so embedded in the way we think about everything, the way we do therapy. It's embedded in the skills we use every day in our therapeutic offices. It's embedded in various uh, modalities, so DBT and schema therapy and others. His notion of emotional intelligence was a paradigm shift. And so now we assume that we can train people to be more emotionally intelligent. We can teach them to be more self-aware. We can teach them to regulate themselves. We can teach them to self-reflect. We can teach people to be mindful. And that was a thing we just could not do um, before his concept was um, written and clarified in the 90s. In the 80s, we did psychodynamic psychotherapy and we did REBT, but we did not talk about awareness of emotions in the way that we talk about them routinely now. So this guy, who started off as a clinical psychologist, and his training is in basic clinical psychology, uh, and he became the, the great poster child for the business psychology and coaching psychology, moving away slightly from his clinical training, but um, retaining that basic scientific approach. And I think it's a really important, therefore, for clinical psychologists to think about these uh, these concepts uh, from time to time, because we often just focus on you know, techniques, which is great. Uh, we always, always need to improve our skills. And you might think, you know, why why is clinically thinking interviewing um, this Dr. Daniel Goleman? I mean, he's just uh, he's an organizational guy, you know, he's a coaching guy. But you actually know these concepts go cut right across um, all kinds of. Uh, Practices of psychology and are very relevant to clinical psych from a big thinking perspective. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Psychologist and author of Emotional Intelligence and a Focus, Daniel Goleman, has transformed the way the world educates children, relates to family and friends, and conducts business. The Wall Street Journal ranked him as one of the 10 most influential business thinkers, and his article, What Makes a Leader, remains the most requested reprint in the history of Harvard Business Review. Goleman's Emotional Intelligence was on the New York Times bestseller list for a year and a half. Named one of the 25 most influential business management books by time, it has been translated into 40 languages. HBR called Emotional Intelligence a revolutionary, paradigm-shattering idea. His work on the brain and behavioural science was nominated twice for the Pulitzer Prize and recognised with the Washburn Award and Lifetime Career Award for the American Psychological Association. A former science journalist for the New York Times, he was named to the 2011 and 2013 Thinkers 50 and a top business guru by Accenture Institute for Strategic Change. Um, thank you so much for making yourself available. Uh, I very much appreciate that. Uh, and we're very much looking forward to hearing you uh, come and speak to our conference in uh, just, just under a few weeks now. Oh, yes. Yeah, so in, uh, we'll, at the moment, I'm in Ghana lands, which is Aboriginal word for, um, for the local lands in which I live in Adelaide, Australia. 
I see. Okay. But in a few weeks, we'll be in Brisbane, uh, which is much sunnier and warmer. So very much looking forward to hearing you speak further. So I suspect a lot of young people can't remember a time when they, we didn't talk about AI. They take it for granted. Right. And it does feel to me like the concept of AI has been around a long time, but I'm old enough <laughs> to know that it hasn't. So how do you think that uh, previous thinkers and researchers kind of missed it? Well, um, I stumbled upon the concept of emotional intelligence when I was a science journalist at the New York Times. Okay. I was, as I was telling you, my degrees in clinical psychology. Mm -hmm. And um, it was an article written by a friend of mine, Peter Salovey. He's now the president at Yale University. And he and a graduate student then in 1990 had written an article that they called Emotional Intelligence in a rather obscure journal. Uh, but my job with the Times was to look at obscure journals or not so obscure journals, see what was new and interesting, mm. and then present it, you know, in the format of a newspaper article. And I thought that this was a wonderful concept. It seems so, seems like an oxymoron. You can't, intelligence and emotions. Back then, those things didn't go together. But then I realized they're talking about being intelligent about emotion. Mm. And so I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence in 1995, which made the concept highly visible. Uh, and if you're born or come of age since 95, you may think it's been around forever. IQ has been around for 100 years. Emotional yes. intelligence is not. Uh, it's a newer concept, and the research on it is still building, frankly. So, yes, indeed. What, what, do, you, what do you think is the key research or, uh, that made the the timing right you know for uh for us to think start talking about emotions and intelligence in the in the same sentence well you have to uh realize that this has become very pervasive in two very different sectors one is education where it's called social emotional learning uh, right. which covers the fundamentals of emotional intelligence and does it in a developmentally appropriate way from kindergarten till kids go to university yeah. Uh, that has become more and more common. And the data on SEL, as it's called, uh, is extremely strong. Uh, and Can you then, tell us about that? Can you tell us a little bit about that data? Sure. Uh, for example, there was a, a meta-analysis of studies involving 270,000 school children, match controls, uh, and those who had the uh, SEL uh, had fewer behavioral problems, mm -hmm. you know, less bullying, fewer fights, and so on. Uh, they were, had more pro-social indicators, liking school, better attendance, and so on. And their academic achievement scores were improved by 11%. Mm -hmm. It was quite stunning, mm -hmm. yes. And that data uh, has been corroborated now many, many times okay. by convergent studies. And on the other hand, uh, there's the widespread interest in emotional intelligence in a business setting. There's, in fact, a mini industry of consultants uh, who are doing emotional intelligence work, coaching or consulting. Uh, and it's extremely widespread there. I'm doing a book now which pulls together the research on emotional intelligence in organizations mm -hmm. because it shows that individuals, leaders, 
and a whole business unit, for example, do better by whatever metric makes sense for them with mm. emotional intelligence. So there's mounting data. But when I wrote the book in 95, there was virtually nothing. No, I could. And I have a feeling looking back in the 90s, um, and if I might draw the lens back a little bit before talking about clinical implications, um, I I look back in the 90s and I think, well, it's a really rich time and creative time in so many ways for clinical psychology. I think of, you know, there's EMDR and there's DBT and the metapsychology, metaclinical, you know, there was also so much going on. It was a real, uh, and the neurobiology of PTSD really developed around that time. And I, I kind of wonder whether you, how you see yourself fitting your work, fitting into that really hugely creative um, time in, in the history of clinical psychology. Well, you know, during that era, I was mostly monitoring the field. Uh, I was reading the journals. I was reporting yeah. it in real right. time. And what I saw was that um, psychoanalysis had, was losing its grip on the field. Uh-huh. And other therapies, which actually were more empirically uh, based, were taking uh, taking up the uh, slack. Things like cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, Aaron Beck was uh, just starting to ascend in those days. Yes, DBT, uh, a whole range of therapies, family systems therapy mm. were coming. And I think that the explosion that you point to of uh, and the richness of the variety of many different therapies coming out of the 90s, particularly, had to do with the fact that people were looking for other modalities other than the formal psychoanalytic mm. um, you know, paradigm, which had been very, very dominant. When I went to Harvard for my clinical psychology, we learned uh, a psychoanalytic approach, psychodynamic. That was all there was back then. Yes, uh, 70s. And, but there was a guy in my class at Harvard who said, you know, I just helped this um, psychiatrist at Penn write a book. His name is Aaron Beck. <laughs> it was the first <laughs> book on depression and cognitive therapy. Wow. And, uh, and what's happened through the 90s and since is that the empirical basis for therapy, which was very weak, frankly, when psychoanalysis was ascendant, Yes. I, I, not to knock psychoanalysis, very rich, uh, if, if you're privileged enough to do it. But, uh, you know, uh, quick therapies, all of a sudden, short-term therapies became very popular because they were more cost-effective. Yes. And there was a huge explosion of uh, confirming research on many of these emerging therapies. And that built the base uh, that now has created great momentum. Absolutely. So thinking about um, this concept that most of I, anybody younger than 30 <laughs> thinks has been around forever and why are we talking about it in any other way that, other than yes, of course, um, how can we best use, how can clinical psychologists, you think, best uh, use these kinds of concepts? And perhaps we should talk a little bit about some of the concepts, but how can we use them um, to assist our clients improve their well-being? Well, let me tell you what I mean by emotional intelligence. Yeah, please do. And then you tell me why a clinical psychologist would be interested. <laughs> uh, the reason I have the question is this. Uh, the emotional intelligence paradigm is in wide use by coaches, 
coaching is a very interesting parallel discipline to clinical psychology in that coaches don't have a particular degree. Mm-hmm. They uh, do what looks like psychotherapy without calling it that. It doesn't have the stigma of a psychopathology basis. So emotional intelligence fits well with that approach. By emotional intelligence, I mean self-awareness, mm-hmm. knowing what you're feeling, why you feel it, how it shapes your perceptions, your impulses to act, your thinking, uh, being able to manage disruptive emotions and marshal positive ones. Uh, this, this is, of course, smack in the area of positive psychology. So that, for example, keeping your eye on your goal and ignoring distractions, uh, being flexible in how you solve problems, um, being able to uh, manage your anger and your anxiety, which has been quite at the heart, anxiety, anger, and depression, out of control, speak to clinical psychology. But this is a uh, uh, an approach to all of those outside of that formal paradigm. And then there's empathy, sensing how other people feel, uh, caring about them, and then using all of that, how you manage yourself and how you tune into other people to have effective relationships, to inspire them to do their best work, for example, uh, to influence them to help them be their best self, whatever that might be. And it sounds an awful like, awful lot like uh, uh, certain schools of clinical psychology, of psychotherapy. But um, the, the clinical psychology I learned in graduate school was completely focused on pathology. So I, I'm turning the question to you, which is what use is this to a clinical psychologist? Well, you put me in the hot seat, but everything you everything you mentioned, I'm smiling as you talk. Of course, all these things are incredibly relevant to what we do in clinical psych with clients in the room, building all these skills, checking these skills out. I guess we just don't think of it so much as uh, emotional intelligence. We think about skills training or we think, oh, we're working in the DBT model or we're working in the schema sure. therapy model, for example. But yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because so my wife worked with uh, Jeff Young, who developed schema therapy. Yes. And uh, she integrated mindfulness with schema therapy, uh-huh. a, a book called Emotional Alchemy. And uh, I've been following that particular approach. And it's true. In many schools, in schema therapy and the others you mentioned, and many others, you really what you're doing is building positive skills in a person. Uh, and when you talk about mental health and well-being, you're talking about the same domain, mm. uh, the domain that emotional intelligence resides in. And I think that from that point of view, it's quite complementary. Uh, and you could look at emotional intelligence as a measure of how well your clients are doing. So measure it, then how would you, how the measuring, I was actually looking up trying to find assessment tools, you know, clinical psychologists like to measure things. It's a, it's a good thing yeah. to do, right? Measure things. Uh, I don't know. I couldn't find anything easily that, uh, that convinced me was, was a good measure of AI. Here's the trick. Here's the, please help um, me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most measures of emotional intelligence are self-report. There's a huge problem with self-report measures because we don't see our blind spots. And data shows that uh, if you give people what's called the 360, where people who know you well 
whose opinions you trust evaluate you anonymously, if you compare their ratings with a person's own ratings, you find that if people have a lot of blind spots, they tend to have very low emotional intelligence as other people see them. The smaller that gap, uh, the more likely they are to be strong in the emotional intelligence uh, range. And I, I have 12 different competencies in my model that are each assessed by behavioral measures. Behavioral is very important because it means that uh, people can agree on what, for example, adaptability looks like, and it fits with how you assess yourself. So I, I would urge you to look for 360 measures. None of them are quick and easy, by the way. I was just thinking that I was thinking, oh, is there something quick and easy that you can recommend that clinic, clinicians can use in the therapeutic space as outcome measures for progress in therapy? But I think I'm hearing you say no. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't trust the quick and easy measures. <laughs> Who does, really? Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we, we're looking for something that's more thorough. So it's 360 notion so that we can, uh, you know, see what, how people are developing. So what I'm hearing from you is that we can train these skills. You know, well, they're all, it's all learned and learnable. All learned. Very interesting. Unlike IQ, which really doesn't change much. IQ seems to be, you know, G, uh, general intelligence has been defined as the speed with which you can master new information. Mm. And that seems to be fairly constant throughout a person's lifespan. Mm -hmm. Emotional intelligence is learned and learnable. You learn it, you know, when a, a mom sues a crying baby, that mother is teaching that baby's brain how to soothe itself. So mm -hmm. it starts pretty much from birth and your parents are your first mentors in emotional intelligence. And then your peers and your teachers and uh, your family, and then, you know, your coworkers, your boss, if you have a good one, mm -hmm. like, because one of the competencies of emotional intelligence is helping other people develop these strengths. So how would it look like a little bit in the therapeutic space? Like, in a, you know, in a, and you talked about coaches, uh, but, you know, clinicians, if they're working on emotional intelligence concepts and can you give us a bit of an idea of what it might look like? And, for example, sitting here interviewing you, uh, you know, I'm a little bit swamped <laughs> with a little bit. I'm a little bit nervous. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? And manage. And I was thinking of the concepts and thinking, right, I need to manage my emotions here. You know, <laughs> how am I going to do that in a mature, emotionally intelligent way? <laughs> I'm having some success with, with multiple cups of tea. But um... <laughs> <laughs> it's very early there, I know. <laughs> So um, there are learning tools for the range of emotional intelligence abilities, but you need to fit the tool to the task. So when it comes to self-awareness, uh, giving people feedback, 360 feedback, for example, is really helpful. Uh, that's very valid. We, you know, almost never in life do we get that kind of information. Yes, very true. Used to use. Uh, so you, but a therapist could do that with the client. You don't need a fancy instrument. Uh, help helping someone uh, learn to manage their disruptive emotions. You know, in the world of uh, cognitive neuroscience, that's called cognitive control, and it's an absolutely vital skill for kids to learn. Mm -hmm. In uh, New Zealand, they did a study of about a thousand kids who had, uh, and they assessed their cognitive control ages four to eight, 
and then they tracked them down in their 30s and they found that it, it predicted how well they'd be doing financially, how healthy they'd be, and the fact that and it had a negative relationship to whether they had any jail record, for example. In other words, they're good citizens. Uh, and, and this is something kids could learn. So kids who didn't have it at four, but had it by eight, had the same outcomes. Right. And there are well-known ways to help kids learn cognitive control. You could do it with your client. Why not? If your client needs it, if your client is impulsive, if your client can't manage anger, if your client is overly fearful and anxious, yeah, uh, cognitive control is an absolutely useful tool. Uh, yeah, and I guess in that space, I'm thinking, of, well, you know, 360, I'm thinking empathic confrontation because I often work in the schema model. You know, there's a sense of feedback around uh, some, some lacking of self-awareness, for example. Is that right? Is that a related concept? I suppose. Tell me what you mean by, by that. Well, empathic confrontation can be used in a whole bunch of ways, I guess, but it is that notion of some independent feedback about the person's behaviour or its impact uh, yeah. in, in the room, you know, in, in the room or on other people. Sure. So it's interesting because I, I've talked about that in terms of the difference between being nice and being kind. Being nice is uh, not saying anything that will upset a person. Being kind is an empathic confrontation where you yeah. tell someone that they need to hear Yes, exactly. Where they a kind way where they can hear it, uh, and this is a, uh, you know opens up a zone for learning. However, I think that's necessary but not sufficient. It's Tell necessary for you to uh, motivate the person, perhaps, to say, you know, uh, your life would be easier if you did X, Y, or Z, uh, and here's how you can do it as the next step. And mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not hearing that. Maybe that's what does happen in the therapy session, but it, it's not necessarily part of the confrontation. Maybe it no, is. No, it's, it's a, a different language, I think, you know, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned uh, that you have an interest in mindfulness, in uh, meditation in the therapeutic space. Can you tell me more about that? You know, when I was doing my clinical psychology training, I happened to get a pre-doctoral traveling fellowship to India. Uh, in uh -huh. I learned, uh, India, India, and uh, one of the things I did was study mindfulness. This is way before it had swept, you know, yes. through the yeah. I mean, decades before. And it seemed to me that there was something really valuable in changing your relationship to the contents of your mind and the flow of thought, uh, and that that could happen in a really good therapy. But that was explicit in mindfulness. And so, for example, when my wife wrote about how to integrate mindfulness with uh, assessing your emotional patterns and Jeff Young's work, Schema Therapy, yes. that made complete sense to me because mindfulness is a skill that allows someone to track their mind in an ongoing way outside the therapy session. A therapist can help you do that during the 50 minutes you're together, however long. But then there's the rest of the week or the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. So why not extend the therapy session, the power of therapy session, by teaching a, a client or encouraging a client to learn uh, how to take a mindful pause before they act 
see what their impulses are, see what their thoughts are, see what their feelings are, and then decide. You know, with kids, they do it in what's called the stoplight. Uh, I visited uh, SEL classes in New Haven, Connecticut, and on the wall was a poster of a stoplight, red light, yellow light, green light. It says, when you're upset, remember the stoplight. Stop and think before you act. Tune in to what you're thinking before you do anything. Uh, Yellow light, think of a range of options, and then green light, pick the best one and try it out. Yeah. So that's, that's a mindful pause, but they're teaching it to kids. So kids will have that as part of their emotional repertoire. You know, the emotional social circuitry of the brain is the last part of the brain to become anatomically mature. So helping kids form these habits in childhood means they may not need to go to therapy later. I'm, I'm hearing you talk um, about the importance of getting these skills taught early, you know, the, the emotional, the IQ, emotional intelligence skills and mindfulness skills of, you know, uh, yes, getting in quickly when kids are young, rather than, as you say, having to repair the damage um, yeah. when we're a little bit older. Is that right? Is that what you think is important? Oh, I think that's exactly right, because it's it's never too late. As I said, it's always learnable. But you you have a kind of double task after those circuits take shape, which is you need to uh, be mindful of when you're about to do the wrong thing. Pause and then remember what the right thing might be. That's how you learn a new habit. So... Mindfulness seems to be well and truly well researched, um, and then there's, there's research in in, in Adelaide um, and and other parts of Australia. So that seems to be fairly well established. And I think in um, some in some states in Australia, it is taught in schools. So that there's some hope that these skills will become. You think that the mindful skills, you know, are kind of cousins of the emotional intelligence concept because it feels related to me. What are your thoughts oh, about yeah. that? Mindfulness is applied self-awareness, basically. It it gives people a tool to be continually self-aware. And, you know, I wrote, I co-wrote a book with Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist at University of Wisconsin in uh, Australia. I think it's called The Science of Meditation. Mm -hmm. Came out two or three years ago. We reviewed, when he and I were graduate students at Harvard, there was like practically zero research on meditation. Now there's more than a thousand studies worldwide a year. Wow. And we sifted through that to look at the very best ones in the top journals. And it's clear that mindfulness training helps people be more calm, more resilient in the technical sense, which is recovering more quickly from upset, Mm. uh, to be more empathic, to be more attentive and able to focus and concentrate and ignore distractions. It's just very, very well documented now by uh, research studies. And there's also interestingly, a dose response relationship. So the more hours you put into it, like with any skill, the better it gets. Yes, I remember that the original, some of the original studies talked about an hour and it was an hour and a half, 45 minutes of uh, practice a day, with, uh, which was seemed like a fairly large amount of mindfulness practice, but uh, that was what was no, required. No, I think that's <laughs> ambitious. I think at the yeah. start, the best meditation is the one you'll do. If you'll do five minutes a day, good. If you'll do yes. 10 minutes a day, good. Uh, if you can extend it gradually, good. Uh, starting, trying to do 45 minutes is a, uh, 
recipe for defeat, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do, I like to t- talk to my clients about mini, mini mindfulness moments, you know, every time that's you cool. sip your water, every time yeah. you take a sip of your coffee, breathe. That's the, like a hypnotic suggestion almost, opposed to hypnotic suggestion just to, you know, take a breath and let it out and just center yourself and know where you are. And the, uh, because people have so much to do in their days, they don't want to add stuff. So um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And um, it, it's not just that, but when many people start, they notice how busy their mind is and they think, oh, I can't do this. My mind is nuts. But actually, everyone's mind is like that. It's just that we don't take the time to stop and monitor the stream of awareness, which yeah. just keeps going and going and going. So it's important to dose yourself at the beginning so you don't give up. In Australia, um, students applying for clinical training, uh, for clinical training programs are largely selected according to their grades. Is there a better way? <laughs> well, um, grades are the best predictor of first-year grades in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrible predictors of clinical effectiveness of uh, the warmth of a person, of kind-heartedness, of empathy. So how could we use these concepts, these AI concepts, to to better? (laughs) Um, I think you could ask people who know the student well uh, what they're like as a person, for example. Mm -hmm. That's a soft measure. Uh, I don't think there's an easy, quick and easy, hard measure. No, that's probably why they use GPAs, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it's quick and dirty and pathetic, frankly, because <laughs> it measures a skill set that has nothing to do with clinical effectiveness. Okay. I think you want people to be warm and empathic. You want people to be insightful. You want people to be uh, able to form a working alliance with a client. Absolutely. We have nothing to do with that. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I just wondered what you thought about that, given the, you know, the importance of this concept. And we, we, some level we'll take it for granted. And then I think in the, well, you don't, but I think a lot of us do. And, and in other ways, we don't pay enough attention to it. You know, we put it into boxes and call it that belongs in that therapy and that belongs in that therapy. But we don't, I don't think we take a global view of the importance mm. of these, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, what, what sort of, how you call them, what sort of tasks they are, but there's a bunch of tasks that we just, yeah, yeah, we're not focusing on enough. So it's interesting. If you asked a person who's a headhunter in business, how do you find the right person for the job? They'll tell you that their business expertise is important, but it's not enough. You want to know what the person is like. And the way to do that is to ask people who know them anonymously to tell you confidentially what that person has been like in their experience. And I would encourage people who are uh, assessing applicants for clinical psychology to do the same. Yes, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I know our time is running running down. I have a, just a couple more questions, um, but I'm, I'm really thinking about, uh, you know, this notion of uh, emotional intelligence. And in your book, and I written some time ago, you know, you, you talk about it emotional literacy is being essential to reducing all kinds of clinical problems. Mm. Uh, I think also you talk about, you know, also crime, you know, the relationship between low low EI and and crime. 
but given you know given the raging rates of crime and across the planet uh and all kinds of other terrible things happening i kind of feel like we haven't had much success really in developing the emotional literacy of our fellow humans what what are your thoughts i think we haven't given it a chance most kids who grow on to be most criminals for example don't have emotional intelligence uh lessons in their schools most schools don't have it and uh how well it's done depends on how well it's implemented mm-hmm. and so you could uh, ostensibly have a curriculum in social emotional learning that could be done terribly and so the kids wouldn't have any effect uh the question is if we gave kids effective social emotional lessons would it matter for their adult life and their adult behavior i think it would Mm. Let's give it a try. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Uh, it's been greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thank you for your patience in sorting out the things, the technical matters that tend to follow these sorts of podcasts. So um, I look forward very much to uh, seeing you again in uh, this time in Brisbane at our conference sure. and introducing Absolutely. you. Yeah. All Excellent. right. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye now.